It is good to be with you all this morning. And as Chris said, I count, also count this church um, a great blessing to my family. And uh, it's a joy to be here and serve you all. I um, also want to give a word of thanks and encouragement. I want to thank you for hosting the classes of Reformed Theological Seminary. If it weren't for the generosity and thoughtfulness of your pastor and elders at a time of transition coming out of COVID especially, I don't know what we would have done. And so we're very grateful for being here uh, Thursday nights and some weekends. We appreciate your welcome, our students, as you do, and the, the thoughtfulness of the staff in preparing everything for them. Um, it's an oasis for them to come from every borough in the city to such a historic structure and be reminded of the, the vast riches of the Christian faith, not only in content, but even in the place where they're gathering. So we're grateful for that. Our students are grateful for that as well. I'm also thankful for the ministry of Resound. Um, we at RTS are so encouraged that Central Presbyterian um, has a vision for uh, taking what makes this congregation so unique and vital and seeing it disseminated, not just in New York City, but around the country. And it's a, it's a privilege that some of our uh, students have been able to be interns, um, graduates become residents, and just on behalf of the whole seminary, I want to, want to express to you as an institution that seeks to serve the broader church, uh, what an encouragement uh, resound is to Reform Theological Seminary. Um, as we consider this text this morning, I'll tell you why I selected it. Um, I've considered Labor Day to be kind of the functional New Year in my life. Uh, what I mean by that is I love New Year's proper, but it's actually Labor Day that marks the beginning of the part of the year that represents the most changes for me and perhaps for many of you. Especially since having children, Labor Day has been the functional New Year. Um, the power of the school calendar uh, is felt as it demands your lordship, demands lordship over you, no matter what else is happening. You know, you pull out that school calendar and you bow the knee to whatever is there, right? And I can tell by your, your response that you have the same experience. And because of that, many workplace patterns and expectations also have tended to take account of the power of this time of the year and September as we move into the fall. So that's why I consider it my sort of functional new year, uh, when everything gets going again. And indeed, at Reformed Theological Seminary, we have orientation on Tuesday night. Um, that'll be an online orientation. People here who serve our students think, well, you don't have a room booked for Tuesday. <laughs> that'll, that'll be online. But then our classes will, will come again on Thursday, and we're off and going with the new year. Well, I hope that you find the new year to be joyful. I hope that you find it to be productive and that and it's fruitful for you. But undoubtedly, you and I will find ourselves thrust into situations this month and this fall that we did not choose or have complete control over. As we've said, outside of our homes, we'll be engaging with teachers, professors, supervisors, clients, parishioners. Uh, we'll be engaging all these folks in a fresh way. At the same time, inside our home or the, wherever we live, these new relationships and these new patterns will be placing stress and strain upon us. Our roommates, our spouses, our siblings, our hallmates will all be doing the same thing we're doing, and that's going to result in some tension at times. You know, as you try to get everybody launched out of the house or get yourself launched on the way to work, for example. 
So I hope that this fall you see much fruit and much joy, and you should know with enthusiasm as you enter into the fall that, not surprisingly, Labor Day began in New York City. The first Labor Day parade was September 5th in 1882, and New York City is still known for having one of the longest working days in the world. I don't know if we're to be congratulated for that or not, and I don't think that includes commute time either. But as much as I hope that you and I will be fruitful in the fall, undoubtedly some difficulties will come our way. Some of them may be great and momentous. Many more will seem routine, small, nagging, insignificant by comparison to what other people are facing. Like those persistent tensions in your home in the morning like the difficulty of living with a roommate that you didn't order up custom from Williams-Sonoma. So this morning, we're going to touch down on one of the great texts in the New Testament on suffering to guide us into the fall as we seek to anticipate these tensions, that we may do so with an experience of Christ. And I want to begin by noting that Peter begins in this passage calling our attention to the personal presence of God in the midst of our lives. We see it right away in 1 Peter 1 and 2 that as he writes to Christians, so he writes to those trusting Christ today, we're described as elect exiles. To be elect is to be chosen for personal relationship for God. It's God's personal initiative foregrounded there. He describes those who are chosen as those sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And this word for sanctified also, again, points to the personal relationship that God has with his people. He dwells with them by his spirit. Therefore, they are, we are set apart from all other people. To be sprinkled with the blood of Christ, pointing to the incredible love, a love like no one has ever seen then or since of the Father giving his one and only Son to be crucified for his people. This is the unfathomable love of God, such a personal and present God we have for us in the midst of everything that we face all the time. And Peter calls us to mind in this way. But to be described as exile, so we're elect exiles, the exiles emphasize that the world in which we live now is not yet complete in the sight of God. There is more work to be done in this world. God is building his kingdom, advancing his purposes. And until that work is complete, we are going to experience this feeling of exile, a dual citizenship in this country or in this world, wherever your citizenship resides, and yet citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And this will create tension. It will create disappointment because we do not live in a perfect world. But the comfort for us here is that our God has not wound up the clock and walked away to live us, to leave us in some mechanistic reality of this imperfect world. Rather, as elect exiles, sanctified by his spirit, sprinkled with the blood of Christ, we are the people that he loves to dwell with in the midst of this exilic experience. He wants to dwell with us on a daily basis and every single minute thing that we face and experience guiding us to the ultimate end, as Peter will say, of the salvation of our souls. Now I say all this at the outset because when we think about trials, 
when we think about difficulties, I find there is a persistent tendency to think that God is only concerned with the big stuff. And that the daily hassles of my life don't matter as much. God's certainly concerned about the war in Ukraine, and, we are, and he is, and we're right and commanded by scripture. And so that's one of the things. Sidebar, I really appreciate the worship of Central Church. It's a robust worship service with the fullness of the Christian tradition here. And you see that in the prayer for the world. Uh, you don't, see that, don't hear that in every church these days. It's prayer for the whole world. So God is concerned with the big things, but we can think, you know, is God really concerned with the fact that I don't like my roommate right now? Is God really concerned with the fact that my kid's failing geometry right now? Is God really concerned that my spouse and I are arguing right now? Is this beyond the concerns of God? Not true at all. You know, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that our Father in heaven has every hair on our head numbered. Why does he say that? He says that precisely to make the point that God cares about every detail in our lives. It is a wonderful testimony to the incredible personal love of God as his his very nature, that he cares about your trials and your sufferings, not because of how big they are in comparison to others, but he cares about them because he cares about you. And this is vital. Not only do we dishonor the person of God if we act like he doesn't care about the small things, but we also rob ourselves of turning to him in those small things for a fresh experience of his love for us. And if we don't turn to him in those small things for a fresh experience in his love for us, guess how much love we have to share with others around us with those difficult clients, difficult spouses, difficult roommates, difficult children, and what have you. Very little, right? There'll be no overflow of love because we don't think God cares about the small things, but indeed, he does. You see, here, Peter calls this first century church, really churches, to obedience. He says that we were elected for obedience to Jesus Christ. But this call to obedience, though it is comprehensive, it's important that we see that beneath it, beneath it lies an even greater reality. Beneath this call to obedience lies the reality of the relationship that God has with us in Jesus Christ. Beneath the call to obedience, why is there there a call to obedience? It's because this relationship is so intimate that we are described as being in Christ. That's how close God is to us. We're not called to be obedient so that God will pay attention to us and bless us. No, the call to obedience is a call to recognize God has already blessed you. God is with you. We're not called to be obedient to work our way to God. We're called to obedience because he's already done the work to be with us. And therefore, and this is so encouraging, nothing that we face is too too small for the God who has chosen to dwell with us in those moments. And nothing that we face is too small to take seriously for God how we respond in those moments. Every trial, regardless of how small it may seem, presents itself as an opportunity to experience the love of God in Christ and to share that love with others. 
So that's the first thing that Peter calls us to here, is to see this personal love of God given to us as elect exiles. Another way that Peter encourages us to honor God in everything here is by reminding us of the great inheritance that is kept in heaven for us. So he says in verse 4 that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept in heaven, it's guarded by faith for us. Now you may have heard the phrase that she's so heavenly minded as to be of no earthly use. Uh, This gets at attention in the life of Christians. How is it that we are to be in the world but not of the world? Well, is it true that to be heavenly minded is of no earthly use? Well, C.S. Lewis took exception to this phrase and he wrote famously in Mere Christianity these words. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. You know, paradox is something that seems absurd until you think about it more deeply. I suppose it's paradoxical that the more we think about that guaranteed inheritance laid up for us in heaven, the more useful we would be on earth. Wouldn't it be the opposite that we would resign ourselves? But the reason for this being true is so simple that we often miss it. We can love God and neighbor with total freedom because we never have to fear how things will turn out for us in the end. Often following Christ in some small way means surrendering a claim or right that you have in that situation. It could be as small as surrendering your claim on the bathroom in a busy morning. It could be as large as surrendering your claim to a promotion that you were passed over, that you rightfully deserved, that you may even sense the Passover has something to do with what you believe small or large in the sight of others. The point is, you can follow Christ with grace. You can honor God, you can love your neighbor, and you can do so with freedom because there is a great inheritance laid up for you that no one on this earth can touch. Those who know that they are rich for eternity can let go of any squabble whether petty or unwarranted, or whether large and significant in the moment. That's why it's actually not a paradox when you think about it. The more we think of our heavenly inheritance, the more free we are to be of great use to God in this present world and everything that we're facing or going to face, even just tomorrow morning. But it's important to see here that Peter is not glib towards suffering or trials. He's not taking just get over it sort of attitude. No, he recognizes that there will be grief in these trials. He says the trials grieve you now for a season. 
And this grief is real. This grief, again, is a result of being in a world that does not work as God intends it to work. It will not stay this way forever. But now we live in exile, and there will be repeated griefs, small and large, as a result of this exilic wandering we have as the people of God. But it's not trivializing that grief to say that in those very moments of grief, we're to find hope by rejoicing in what God has already done for us in Christ and thinking about the incredible inheritance that we have laid up for us in heaven. No matter what decision you're called to make because Jesus is there with you, you can be confident that a palatial estate awaits you guaranteed one day. And no matter what it costs you, you can be confident that it's going to be worth it. So after calling attention to this personal presence of God, Paul calls our, uh, Peter calls our attention to this inheritance that we have and how that can shape us and give us something to rejoice about in the midst of every kind of trial. And the last thing he calls our attention to is to behold what is ultimately at stake. Now we mentioned that there are a number of reasons why it's damaging to us actually if we don't consider the significance of these small trials. I'd like to mention another reason. It's by walking with Christ in these small things, in these small trials, that we are prepared to walk with him in the biggest trials. There are some things that will come your way that seem so big as to threaten to overwhelm your whole faith if you don't remember the great love of God for you in Jesus, and if you don't remember that your inheritance in the future is secure no matter what the cost is in the present. And here it's instructive to think about Peter's own life and the life of the early church as he writes these words to us. There's wide consensus among scholars that Peter wrote this letter from Rome before the great persecution of Christians launched by the Emperor Nero. Why did Nero persecute Christians? Well, on July 18th, AD 64, Nero decided to set fire to the enormous Circus Maximus Stadium in Rome. Before that fire was extinguished, 10 of Rome's 14 districts had burned to the ground. Why did Nero do this? Why would an emperor burn his own city? He was such a megalomaniac. And he loved building projects that to create more space for his own building projects in Rome, the capital city, he was willing to burn it to the ground. Talk about a narcissist. Well, Nero wanted a scapegoat for this fire. And he decided to blame it on the Christians. So the great ancient Roman historian Tacitus writes in his annals these words. Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, had suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. 
Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths, covered with the skins of beasts. They were torn by dogs and perished, or they were nailed to the crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight expired. Such brutal persecution that Nero launched in Rome against the Christians as a scapegoat for his own insane pursuits. Well, it's amazing that Peter wrote this letter before Nero burned Rome and before the Neronian persecution of the church. He became a victim of that persecution. Well-received church tradition passes down to us through an apocryphal text that Peter saw his own wife martyred. And as she burned, he encouraged her with, remember the Lord Jesus. And Peter himself was crucified upside down. Why upside down? Because when they told him they were going to crucify him, he didn't think it was fitting to be crucified right side up as his Lord. Such incredible courage, such incredible faith. And consider the wisdom of God. He gives Peter these words a couple of several years before this persecution breaks out. The church facing ordinary persecution, believers facing ordinary trials, ordinary levels of opposition because they follow Christ. Yet hear these words in verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And fire, the church did indeed see, really and truly, at the hands of Nero. But where does Peter get this courage? Where did all those Christians who would rather have died than turn away from the Lord find that courage? You know, we hear these incredible examples. It can be dangerous that we would distance distance them too far from ourselves. If you read this letter, down further in the letter, you see that Peter calls his readers and us today, to a very intimate knowledge of Christ. Before he moves into calling for greater obedience in the face of suffering in 1 Peter 2, 21 and following, he begins with these words, Christ suffered for you. What is he doing? He's calling you, he's calling me, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to remember the incredible love of Jesus Christ for us, a love that loved us to the very end. Not only that we would just barely save our souls, but no, to make you a fellow heir, a brother, a sister of Jesus Christ, not with a place in the heavenly village, but with a room in the castle, with an imperishable inheritance. Now, Peter calls us, as he ended up calling himself ultimately in this letter, he calls us to behold that which is ultimate, the salvation of our souls, 
with a great, great reward. And he calls us always to remember the great love of God the Father and Jesus Christ, no matter what we're facing. That's where we start. As we come to this Lord's table, we remember this love of Jesus for us in just a vivid and palpable way. The tastefulness, the, the, the wonder of our God to make one of the major ordinances of our faith. We only have two, and, and one of them is a mini meal with wine and bread. This hospitable table is delivered to us as a gift by way of a fiery trial that the Lord Jesus Christ himself bore on our behalf. It was unjust that at the hands of Pontius Pilate he had to die. He did nothing to warrant that death. He suffered great indignity. He was crucified naked. He was betrayed by his friends. And all of this he did for us. Again, not that we might have a mere salvation or just get out of jail and escape the flames of hell. No, but that we might become fellow heirs with him forever. Heirs with an an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading forever. So this fall, no matter how great or small the trial, we remember, we remember that everything matters. Everything matters because of Jesus' great love for us. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you so loved and elect people as to give the Lord Jesus Christ for them. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your death and resurrection and reign on our behalf and blessed Holy Spirit. We thank you that because of your presence, indeed, we are always intimately in fellowship with God. Therefore, everything matters to you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.